Acts 2, 1-13 When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We left our story of Jesus' appearances after the resurrection when he had come to his disciples in Jerusalem. They had gone back to Jerusalem. We don't know why. Maybe it was to be there for the next festal celebration, the next festival that the Jews were going to celebrate after Passover which is Pentecost, or um, really it translates to 50 days or seven weeks after the um, Passover celebration. And this is when the Jewish people would celebrate a harvest. And it was the first harvest of usually the wheat grain coming in. And so uh, here in this, this celebration, the um, disciples found themselves in Jerusalem and Jesus had met with them and had ascended to heaven and told them to continue to wait there in that place until the Spirit would come on them. And so 10 days later, they're gathering together in a house, maybe the same house that they were eating together in before, maybe a different house. It seems like they're closer to the temple than maybe they were the week before when Jesus appeared to them. It seems like that they're in a space where uh, others are gathered around and there's lots of people, which would have meant that they would have been inside of the city. Now, for some reason, and this is something for us to think about in our recollection, memory, and study of the Bible, for some reason, despite the fact that I have preached on this text probably literally dozen times or so, that I've read the text dozens of times in so many different formats, uh, despite the fact that I have studied this text for a very long time, in my mind, in my mind's eye, as I pictured the events of Pentecost, I pictured the disciples gathered around worshiping at one of the gates of the temple. I, I don't know how many of you might also have this same kind of image in your brain. Maybe it's from the paintings and pictures that we've seen depicted of the Pentecost over the years that this imagery has stuck in our minds and made us picture this as being something near or inside the temple. And yet the text doesn't really say that at all. 
The text just says that they were in a house which they were accustomed to gathering in. And so here they are inside of this house, and just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit comes on them. Interesting thing is Jesus doesn't give them a particular day or a particular time that the Spirit is going to come. Jesus just says, wait, wait until the Spirit comes. And so even though the disciples are eagerly anticipating and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in power, it's still a surprise. It's still something that's mysterious and just suddenly happens without really any warning, just on a normal day as they're going about their activities. What an interesting idea and concept, and it goes to reinforce what Jesus tells Nicodemus in the Gospel of John when Jesus says that who can tell the ways of the Spirit, that who, just like you can't tell the ways of the wind, that the wind blows and nobody really knows why and where. Now today with modern science, we've come up with models to try and figure out how airflow works throughout uh, all the different regions that we live in and how that affects weather patterns and stuff. And even still, the wind and the weather do things that are completely outside of our ability to understand totally and our ability to predict completely. There's too many variables beyond our knowledge. And so Jesus uses this as a way to illustrate our lack of control over God's ways. That God will do whatever God wants to do, regardless of how we feel about it. And so here on Pentecost, as the disciples are gathering together, whether they're celebrating the Festival of Weeks, Pentecost, uh, and, and celebrating this, this harvest festival, or whether they're just meeting together like they typically do on Sundays, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus together, we don't know. But as they're going about their normal business, all of a sudden, the Spirit comes. This is important. This is important for a lot of reasons. One, God had promised that there would come a day when the people of God would have God's Spirit within them. He had promised that no longer would they need to go to the temple for the presence of God. No longer would they need some um, you know, written rules here and there, but that in, instead God would write the, His commandments on their heart with the presence of His Holy Spirit in them. And we see John the baptizer as he's beginning his ministry and as he's talking about what is to come, what his ministry is all about, he says that there's going to be a day when the people are going to be baptized with fire in the Spirit. And so John the baptizer understands this, this prophecy and understands what, is, what he's preparing the people for in his baptism of repentance in the Jordan River in the desert. And so he knows what really is going to come. And then Jesus, Jesus in his ministry tells his disciples over and over again about the fact that the Spirit will come. And before he dies, he even tells them that it's okay that he's going to die, that he's going to resurrect, and that he's going to ascend to heaven because it's in those series of activities that then the Spirit will be sent and the, the Spirit of God will rest permanently on God's people indwelling them and guiding them, counseling them, helping them to be transformed into the image of Jesus so that they might serve God in the way they're supposed to. So this is a fulfillment of a long-term hope and promise of God for God's people. So this is a significant moment. It's not just significant because it's the birthday of the church or it's the beginning of the church or whatever. You can look at the church as having potentially started even before this 
because the disciples were really the beginning of the church and as Jesus called them together and taught them and as he appeared to them over this period of time between the resurrection and Pentecost, he was preparing them to be the church already. And so yes, this is the first manifestation of the Holy Spirit resting on the people of God and so it can be seen as kind of a birthday of Christianity, but in reality, I think it's better for us to see it as a fulfillment of a long time hope and a long time promise of God to God's people. And finally, finally God has fulfilled everything that's in his mind to begin to prepare us to be vessels of his presence in this created order. This is an amazing idea, amazing statement. And so in this story, we see that God shows up and there's three signs. There's three signs that, that appear with the Holy Spirit coming to God's people. The first sign is a huge noise. And the writer of this gospel, or of this book of Acts in the Gospel of Luke, um, who we believe is Luke, the companion of Paul, the writer is letting us know that the sound sounded like a rushing wind. Now it's important to note that Luke does not say that there was a rushing wind. Luke says that there is a loud sound like a rushing wind. So there's a metaphor that he's using to describe something that's beyond some, what is normal for us, that it's something different. And so he lacks the real words to describe it. And so he uses something that is much more uh, familiar to maybe most of the readers, the sound of a rushing wind. We've all heard wind as it blows through trees or forest or it blows against a building or it blows through hallways within a city. We've all heard that loud noise of the rushing of the wind. But this is also significant because of the fact that the scriptures regularly refer to the Spirit's movement and the Spirit's presence like wind. Jesus himself, as we already noted in the Gospel of John and talking to Nicodemus in the middle of the night, relates the Holy Spirit's activity and movement to wind. And so Luke's connection to the sound of wind which was heard, and you, we assume he's hearing this from first-hand accounts and he's portraying it as though he's hearing it from first-hand accounts of people who were there. We, we think that this is what ha actually happened, that the sound was there, but it's not insignificant that it also fits with the language of the rest of Scripture and the discussion about the Holy Spirit. The second sign. The second sign is that the Spirit seems to split or to divide into individual like flames, tongues of flames, and then rests on each of the believers. We don't really know how big this crowd is. They were meeting in a house, so your assumption could be that this is not a huge house, that this isn't like most first century Palestinian houses, that this is not a huge group that's meeting. Is it just the 12? Uh, or is it 12 plus some? Is it 12 plus the women that follow Jesus? Or is it more like the 120 that seem to show up in various other accounts of Jesus' appearances? Or is it groups of 70 or 50? We don't know. All we know is that there was a group of disciples that were meeting together who had been following Jesus, who had witnessed his resurrection, and were waiting for the Spirit to come in power, and the Spirit finally does. And when the Spirit does, again, it does something beyond our natural human comprehension. And so Luke has to fall back to human experience and knowledge to say what it was like. And he says it was like tongues 
of flames, tongues of flames. Now, we've all sat at a campfire and we've all watched as flames have flickered in, in those top parts of the flames that are just wild and they're moved around by, by the air and all kinds of other things. Those are what we would kind of consider the tongues of flames. And so this is what they saw. This is what it, it appeared to them as, as flames coming and resting on each of the believers. This is also significant with ancient history in the scriptures because God's presence in the temple was said to be in the appearance of a flame. That as God led the people out of Egypt and the Exodus and into the desert, God went before them in the daytime as a, as a pillar of smoke, presumably from the flame. And then in the nighttime, you could visibly see the flame because it was nighttime. And so in the nighttime, a pillar of fire. And so this concept of God's presence being like fire is found in throughout the scriptures as early on as the Exodus. And so here, this is showing that the Spirit is God's actual presence with us believers in our hearts. And so this metaphorical image that comes, um, that, that all Luke can do is describe it as a metaphor. It was like flames, reinforces that image and that idea that we've had for many centuries by this point. And it begins to tell us something about what is going on. I want to make a little note about biblical writers here. Uh, there's a lot of details missing from this account, as there are a lot of details missing from pretty much every single one of the New Testament gospel stories. For one thing, writing was not a cheap thing back then. They couldn't just pound out a 15,000 word book and um, print it out on an inkjet printer or whatever. No, they, they had to hand write each word, each letter, and they utilized the space so efficiently that most ancient languages didn't even include spacing between words. And so it was just literally a bunch of words written together and you, by context, were supposed to figure out what the words were. Um, and it's pretty easy to do. You can do it with English if you just type with no spaces. It's pretty easy to figure out. And we do that today a lot in hashtags, right, on, on the internet, on Twitter. There's no spaces usually in hashtags, and yet we're still able to figure out what they say. So it's very similar to that. But the, that whole thing was to reduce the use of space that they would use when they're writing things down, or to use the least amount of materials as possible. And so when ancient writers would write these stories, they often wouldn't get into details. And it wasn't important to them culturally to get into the details. But today, today we want every detail. You know, the bigger the biography that shows the most minutia about somebody's life that we can learn from whatever sources we have, the more we can flesh out the details of how something happened, the more we feel confident that it did happen because there's more details to it. So it can bother us sometimes when we read these stories in the Gospels and in Acts and glaringly obvious details that we think should be there aren't there. Like what time is it? when the disciples are coming together and the Holy Spirit comes. Um, where are they at exactly within Jerusalem? How many of the believers are there? All of these are legitimate questions that are left out of the text and can drive us crazy. And yet, that's not the intention of Luke. Luke is choosing to include the things that he includes so that the message he thinks is most important can be conveyed to those who would read it. So the text and what is included is incredibly important 
for us to look at and understand. And so that's why it's important for us to look at these three symbols that Luke gives to us, the wind, fire, and then the third symbol, the third symbol that they began to speak in tongues or languages that weren't their own. Now Luke begins to explain a little why this might occur as he continues on in the story. And he says that because of the festival of weeks, Pentecost, there were Jews from every single nation gathered together. Now in Jerusalem in general, Jews would make trips to come to the Holy Land, to come to Jerusalem, and to worship at the temple, especially during festival times. But many Jews would choose to immigrate there for different opportunities of work or opportunities to be closer to the faith that they held so dear. And so Jerusalem in general was full of people who had different traditions, came from different areas, had slightly different customs and cultures, and often spoke different languages. In fact, the Holy World and in much of the European world today used to speak many languages just in, in every single human being would have spoke different languages. In Jesus' time, pretty much everybody would have spoke some form of marketplace Greek in some way or another because it's the place, it's the language that was necessary for you to perform in the market and be able to sell and buy. And this is the same thing today kind of with English. Most people around the world learn English because English seems to be the dominant language of business um, between various different countries trying to work together. So in those days, they would have most likely have spoke Greek. Many people in the area might have spoke Latin because it was the Roman Empire and Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. And so many people might have spoke Latin, especially the soldiers and Roman citizens who were there on the, on the business of Rome and helping to govern the area for Rome, they would have spoke Latin. And then these Jewish people would have likely been raised to understand and speak Hebrew. They may have also been able to speak Aramaic, was kind of the local language of the people of Israel that they had picked up while they were in exile in the Old Testament. And so there is all these languages. But if a, a Jew was from somewhere in North Africa, like Cyrene, or if they were from Egypt, then they might speak a specific dialect or a specific language that's from that region as well. And so here they are in Jerusalem, uh, a kind of a kaleidoscope of people. And as they hear a loud noise, we assume that the loud noise they hear is the wind. So it wasn't just the disciples in the house who heard the loud noise, but it was people who were passing by, people who were around. Again, giving us the impression that they were in the more busy part in the actual city near the temple. And they hear this wind blowing and it kind of catches people's attention. Have you ever been walking somewhere and you see people begin to gather and look at something? And you kind of look and think, what is everybody looking at? And your own curiosity begins to take over and, and the crowd that you see, you want to join them because you, what is everybody so curious about? There's been a few funny videos on the internet in the last few years where somebody, a YouTuber or somebody who's not very famous, will hire photographers to take pictures of them like paparazzi and, a, and an entourage to be around them. And they'll just walk through a busy place like New York Times Square or something like that, you know, in, in New York or in Philadelphia or, or LA. And it's amazing how many people in the area just seeing the commotion will just immediately assume that there's something of importance going on and they'll come over. And they oftentimes will ask this no-name person to sign something for them 
or to take a picture with them, and they're not even a celebrity, yet they, because of the behavior of everybody around, think that it's a celebrity. It's a part of our nature as humans. We're curious creatures. And so as we hear something or something becomes of interest, we want to be a part of it. We want to somehow join ourselves to it. And so as we see a group gathering, we're probably going to be drawn towards that group in order to understand what's going on. And so the people hear this wind, hear this noise, and they migrate over to the crowd that's forming. And as the, form, the crowd grows and grows and grows, people begin to recognize that the disciples who are at the center of this rushing noise are speaking words, but not in their native tongue, not in the language that is most common to Galileans and in the specific dialect of Galilee, but instead they hear their own home language being spoken. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle of the Spirit translating the message of the gospel being spoken by these early disciples so that everyone can hear. Let's look at these three symbols. The first symbol of wind. This is representative of the both mysterious and powerful nature of God. Who can control the wind? And yet we've all seen if the effects of wind and we've all seen how wind can blow a reporter who's there at the scene of a tornado or there at the scene of a hurricane right off of their feet, right? And the wind has incredible power. And so the ancient people knew this inherently and God knew they knew this. And so for God to associate his presence in the Holy Spirit with wind is to represent God's power coming upon the people, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And then flames. Flames coming down in ancient times would oftentimes represent purity. You would purify things by putting it under flames. Both cooking food or boiling water or other things that would happen would be because the flames would purify it. And so flames became an image of purity. And it also, flames produced light. And so they helped for you to be able to see things. So these began to show us the purifying, unifying nature of the Holy Spirit within the believers and the guidance that the Holy Spirit has for those who believe. And then the third thing, speaking in different languages. This is a symbol, a sign of God's universality to the gospel message. That the church was not just for Jewish people. The church was not just for those who spoke Hebrew and understood the Hebrew texts. No, the church and the gospel was for all humanity to participate in. And the Holy Spirit was going to make it eminently known the very first day on the scene that it's for everyone and that there would be no hindrances for people hearing and understanding the good news of Jesus and coming to Jesus. So what does it mean for us today, this story? Well, this story for our tribe, for Presbyterians, actually can be a little scandalous, right? Because this is the day in which the Holy Spirit comes and in begins to do incredibly charismatic uh, gifting of the church. Charisma or charis in Greek actually means grace. And so these are gifts of grace which we don't deserve and which we don't have naturally but that God gives to us in a miraculous way so that God might reveal himself through us and through that miracle. And so this is something Presbyterians usually don't focus on. We don't usually talk about the Holy Spirit, and yet it's deeply part of our culture and it's deeply part of our theology going all the way back to John Calvin to be aware of the mysterious presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. 
for us to be aware that the Spirit is guiding us and that we have the power of God in us, working to enact God's will in our lives and in the lives of people around us as God works through us towards them in the world. Are you aware of the Spirit? Do you work to gain a deeper awareness of the Spirit's role and movement in your life? Are you on the lookout for the Spirit in your life? Are you praying and listening for the Spirit's guidance in your day-to-day activities? I know I'm convicted often when I'm challenged with something, I tend to immediately call people I respect and who I think know me really well and ask questions and try and seek advice and counsel from those who I trust the most. And I'm convicted that I do that before I'll even pray and ask for the Spirit to guide me. I think we need to learn together more how to be guided by the Holy Spirit, how to listen to the Holy Spirit's ways, and to become more attuned to the Spirit's work in our daily lives. And we do this by spending time with the Holy Spirit, spending time being aware of God's presence in our lives with the Holy Spirit by setting apart time and silence and solitude and meditation and fasting and prayer and listening. By the way, next week we start a series called 10 Christian Practices, and we're over the summer going to be looking at 10 significant Christian practices that I think every Christian should experience or practice in some way or another. And each one of them, if you practice them and if you become accustomed to them in your life, I think will help you begin to understand the Spirit's movement more on a daily basis. And so I encourage you as we look at these over the next 10 weeks to begin to practice them yourself. But the Spirit is there. Regardless if you recognize the Spirit's presence or you don't, the Spirit's power is working in you. Whether you can sense and perceive the Spirit's power or not, the Spirit is there. So be comforted. Be comforted to know that you are not alone and that God's Spirit is within you, guiding you, giving you comfort and giving you um, wisdom and giving you grace and love from God the Father constantly. Let us rejoice in this and let us be worshipful of God And as we remember the gifts that God gives us in the Holy Spirit, let us recognize that the Spirit doesn't just invade our heart, one little like portion of our life as we try to think of it, but the Spirit invades all of us. The idea is that the Spirit would become, would fill us like the Spirit filled the disciples on Pentecost. And that we would not act on our own accord, but act according to God. And so that reminds us as every week as we come to the time of offering in our worship, we remind each other that we don't owe 10% to God, we owe 100% to God. And that we've all made commitments of how to support the ministries God's doing through First Press Dearborn and that that is between you and God. But in reality, everything you have belongs to God and everything you do should be done unto the Lord. So we give you a chance before offering each time to sit and to think and to reflect and pray about areas where you're not recognizing Jesus' lordship in your own life, and then to, in the offering, give that over to the Lord so that the Lord can be use that place in your life in the same way that he uses the other places you've already relinquished to him. So let us come in that knowledge now, and let us pray and reflect and offer ourselves up to the Lord in, in the giving of his tithes and our sacrifices. Friends, thanks again for coming and worshiping together today. I hope that you are challenged in the Holy Spirit. And may you, as you leave our 
corporate worship today and go back into whatever normal life is normal for you these days, I challenge you to be aware of the Spirit's presence in your daily life. Be aware of how the Spirit is with you in every single moment and guiding you and opening your eyes to what God is doing moment by moment. Do this by sitting in times of prayer and intentional listening. Do this by reading the scriptures. Do this in conversations with your fellow Christians. Go and be challenged and led by the Holy Spirit to do God's will. And may God's Spirit be in you, making you ever deeper in your knowledge of the love of God for you. And may you live as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of God, day by day. Amen.